When I was younger, one of my school teachers uh, gave an exam to our class, and we only had a few minutes to complete the exam, and there were a lot of questions, so speed was important, and the exam was a bit tricky. Um, The exam began by instructing you to read all the questions first, and that was the key because the last question basically invalidated all the other questions and asked you to do something simple like write your name in this blank and then look busy so you don't tip off the rest of the students in the class. And so in the rush, if you were distracted, ignored the the instructions, and jumped right in, the questions would prompt you to do meaningless and silly things. And uh, by frantically completing each question, you showed that you ignored the directions and missed the entire point of the exam. Following the instructions would save you from looking like a buffoon and, uh, and failing the test. Now, I was probably the kid that just jumped right in. Um, okay, question one, add 103, 114, 131, and then circle the answer. Uh, done, two, you know, draw five circles and then put an X in the middle of each one. All right, done. Uh, three, loudly call out your name so that the teacher knows how far you've gone. Jonathan Shirk. Uh, four, you know, why aren't more people yelling? This is... You know, so I I don't really remember exactly how I did on the exam or if I did that, but you get the point of the exam. Some instructions are very important. And if you ignore them, you end up looking like a doofus doing meaningless and useless things while thinking you're doing the right things. Is it possible that you are ignoring God's instructions and doing a bunch of religious things that you think are right when in reality they're dreadful in the sight of God. Maybe you've created your own religious routine that doesn't actually give God the kind of worship that God wants. It could be that you've always sought out what pleases you in worship instead of what pleases God in worship. Maybe you attach spiritual significance to certain religious objects or customs or habits when God attaches no meaning to them at all. God has laid out for us in His Holy Word what kind of worship He wants And how to do it. And it is beautiful for us. It is beneficial for us. God accepts worship done his way. And he takes no pleasure in worship done otherwise. So our primary aim must be to love God as he wants to be loved. Another danger is to offer God half-hearted worship. Half-hearted worship shows indifference towards God. We may saunter into worship unprepared and preoccupied, yawning at his word and sacraments, meandering through prayer with no direction, no urgency, and giving as much moxie to worship as we give our taxes. Our lethargy tells God he's really not that important to us. Saints, I want you to hear this loud and clear. I deeply love you. I deeply love you. I cherish this church. I cherish you. And as your brother first, and as your pastor second, 
I want to love you by challenging you to grow. Please hear my love for God in this and my love for you in this. God is doing great things in our midst. Great things. I see them. I am grateful. I am grateful. But I fear that some of you are just going through the religious motions with little to no affection for God and little interest in His holy word. I fear that some of you attach spiritual significance to things that God does not attach spiritual significance to. Objects, traditions, ceremonies, and those things are distracting you from pure and passionate worship of God. I fear that tradition is holding some of you back from a much closer relationship with God and more effective ministry. And this is serious because God is not pleased. But you may naively believe that he is. And I want to help you work through that. I want to help you grow through that for God's glory and for your greater joy in God. Now, you have to be humbly self-reflective during this sermon series or it's just not going to do much for you. It's not going to be that helpful. And you're going to miss what God is actually telling you, the word that God has for you and for us. Now, it would be unloving for me to sugarcoat this, so I'm not going to. In some ways... We have ignored what God has said and created worship how we want it to be. There is idolatry in this church. God considers it evil and is calling us to repent and follow his spirit into purer, into more passionate worship. Our second best is not good enough for God. Our leftovers are not good enough for God. We must aim for the pleasure of God so we have some corporate work to do. Israel asked God, how have you loved us? Wouldn't it have been more appropriate for Israel to ask, how have we loved you? Introspection would have served Israel well. We're heading into argument two, which is the B of the chiasm, which you had in your notes last week, where God hammers Israel about their obnoxious worship. God loved them like crazy. You cannot cannot forget how he began this. He loved them like crazy, and so he rebuked them strongly and called for great worship reform in Israel. He called them back to pure worship. He called them back to passionate worship. This sermon should hurt a bit. It should. But I'll make you a promise. I intend to keep it. At the end, we will see Jesus, and he should encourage you. Okay? So there's my promise. There is a radiant and beautiful calm after the dark of this storm. God begins, verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. God is our father and Master and is worthy of our honor and fear. So we must give him the honor and fear he is due. To honor, kavad, to be heavy, weighty, to, to give honor. Sons kavad their 
fathers. God even commands it, honor your father and your mother. Servants and slaves fear their masters. God says, if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts. As a beloved father of Israel, God deserved their utmost honor. In Exodus 4.22, God called Israel his firstborn son. In Jeremiah 31 verse 9, God says, I am a father to Israel. In Hosea 11 verse 1, God tenderly says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Oh, to unpack that. God loved Israel as his son. Where was Israel's honor for their father? God was also Israel's master, their Lord. He was their sovereign. He had redeemed them from slavery, so they rightfully belonged to him. Their fear was due him, yet they gave him no fear. And God was saying, where is my fear? The Hebrew word mora, translated fear, is packed with meaning, and our English falls short, as it often does. Malachi 2.5 helps us understand fear. God says this, listen closely. My covenant with Levi was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. Fear in Malachi 1 is both terror and awe. It's dread and it's wonder all at the same time. One study note said this, no single English word conveys every aspect of the fear in this phrase. The meaning includes worshipful submission, reverential awe, and obedient respect to the covenant-keeping God of Israel. Israel gave, no, gave God no honor. They gave him no fear. Verse 6 says, Where is my honor? Where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. God spoke to the priests who superintended temple worship. They bore a critical responsibility to teach and to lead the people in right worship, so the people were indirectly in view here as well. The priests were not being faithful worship leaders. Make no mistake, Israel was worshiping. They were absolutely worshiping, but they weren't worshiping rightly. And that insulted God's name. Do you realize that religious activity is not ultimately what God wants? God wants honorable and fearful worship done his way. Giving sacrifices was right. That was right. But Israel gave the wrong sacrifices and they gave it the wrong way and God equated that for disdain for his holy name. You see, the, the, the name of God represents the fullness of God, the fullness of his character, the fullness of his nature and his essence. Disdain for God's name, therefore, is disdain for God himself, which is very serious. Was, was Israel disgusted at the name of God? Of course not. They weren't. But consider what Taylor and Clendenin wrote about this. Quote, the verb translated show contempt, 
or in the ESV, uh, despised, is a participle indicating an ongoing characteristic attitude. It was not an attitude of revulsion, but of treating something as if it were insignificant and worthless. They were not taking God seriously with the result that they considered their service to him as unimportant, not worth much time or trouble. End of quote. That's it. They, they were not taking God seriously. Their worship was careless. Their worship was indifferent and empty religious activity. How many churchgoers are doing the same thing? Casual and aloof churchgoers wouldn't say that they find God revolting, but their attitudes, worship, and lifestyle, their attitudes, worship, and lifestyle show that they find God insignificant. They don't take God seriously. They don't take scripture seriously. They don't take worship seriously. They don't take the church seriously. They don't take holiness seriously. They give God their leftovers. They are so busy and so preoccupied with so many things that they have little left to give God. Because obviously God is not that important to them. That's a most precarious position. We give God what we believe God is worthy of. Is there honor in your worship? Is there fear in your worship? I grew up in church. It might be up for debate whether I was actually delivered in church. I'm just kidding. I was effort a hospital. It's not, my family's not that weird. We're weird and, and a lot of them are here. Uh, but uh, mom delivered an effort a hospital. Thank you, mom. That would have been awkward. But I have been to countless worship services in my life, and I have often brought God stale, petty, bored, and lifeless worship, and I have shown disdain for God's name. Oh, God, forgive my indifference. Israel was blind to their indifference. Verse 6 says, but you say, and that's a frequent phrase, but you say, how have we despised your name? In other words, what are we doing wrong in worship? <laughs> what's, what's up? What are we doing wrong? Israel didn't see how offensive, how objectionable their worship was. So take this to heart. Our impure and indifferent worship shows disdain for God. Here's why Israel's worship was impure. God explained in verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar. That's temple talk. The priests uh, offered sacrifices of worship for the people of God in the temple of God, on the altar of God, but their sacrifices were polluted and not fitting for God. And in the act of offering polluted sacrifices to God, Israel was polluting God himself. God said, but you say, how have we polluted you? To offer God polluted worship is to pollute God. Now, please forgive me for using a crass illustration this morning, but hopefully it serves you uh, to, to make a vivid point that you don't easily forget. Let's say it's a, uh, it's a milestone anniversary with your spouse. 
you decide to prepare them a very, very special dinner. The ambiance is exquisite, linens white as snow. You have china that's sparkling like diamonds, flowers like the Garden of Versailles. Miles Davis is even playing in the background. Come on, everything is perfect. This night is amazing. And you head into the kitchen and and you begin serving your spouse and you return to the dining room in a yellow rubber apron, rubber gloves and muck boots and you have a hose in your hand and, and suddenly you begin pumping human waste from your septic tank all over your spouse's plate and all over your spouse. You just start blowing sewage, all, all the nauseating sewage all over the room. Would you expect your spouse to be pleased? You'd be a fool to wonder at the end of the evening, man, I I can't get it. I don't understand. I thought I was doing it right. You wouldn't be able, you'd be a fool to think, why is, man, why is she so mad? Whatever your intention, your gift was disgusting and actually communicated your inattentiveness, heartlessness, and disdain. God told Israel in verses 7 and 8 exactly how they were polluting him by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Now, you can say something outright or you can say something figuratively by what you do. The priests were allowing obnoxious and offensive sacrifices on God's altar figuratively that made a statement about where they were. The Lord's table in verse 7 seems to refer to the altar of burnt offering, burnt sacrifices. It was as if God was a great king who was throwing a grand dinner party and instead of bringing in a feast to honor the king with delicacies, the servants brought in rancid and rotten food, killing the entire point of the feast, ruining it all. The Lord's table was a table of honor. It was a table of privilege. It was a table of delight. And yet the priests were allowing it to be desecrated. God had described for Israel way back in the days of Moses. They should have known this, exactly what sacrifices he wanted. Leviticus 1, verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish, He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted by God, before the Lord, rather. Leviticus 21, 19 through 21. If it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock... To be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Numbers 28, verse 3 and 6 say this. This is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs, a year old, without blemish, day by day, as a regular offering. It is a regular burnt offering which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to God. Deuteronomy 15, 21, but if, any, but if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. 
perfect is acceptable to God. Not defective, not damaged, not lacking, perfect. God accepts perfect. Anything less is evil. Listen, how have we polluted you by saying that the Lord's table may be despised? When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Let that sink in. Evil. The wrong sacrifices of worship were evil. Christians do the same thing today. They pour into churches to offer God blind, lame, and sick worship, and it's evil. Do we honestly believe that God will accept our twisted worship? Are we surprised that he considers it evil? Here's why Israel's worship was indifferent. The objectionable sacrifices came from objectionable hearts, closed off to the word of God, ignoring the word of God. Israel didn't care about God. Israel didn't care about his law. At least not much. They were like the student who failed to read the directions at the beginning and and busied himself with frantic and meaningless work when he could have just enjoyed the freedom and the rest of the last question. Impure and indifferent worship is an act of disdain for God and it's evil. Okay. May I lovingly challenge you. I hope this leads you to profitable introspection. Are you ignoring God's instructions on worship in order to worship how you want? Or are you humbly searching God's word inside and out in order to worship how he wants, to find out what he wants? Would you honestly consider that? Does God's word shape your worship practices? Does he shape ours? Do you put spiritual stock in religious Objects or traditions or relics or ceremonies that have no biblical precedence or justification. Behind me, we have what many would call an altar. Biblically and historically, an altar is a place of sacrifice. Jesus was the final Sacrifice for sin. And Jesus fulfilled all the temple symbolism. So Jesus has made an altar obsolete. Should we refer to a piece of furniture or an area in a church as an altar? If we do, what might that suggest? Maybe, maybe it just serves as a visual reminder of the sacrifice of Christ. Has God told us to use an altar to help us remember Christ's sacrifice. Hasn't he given us preaching? Hasn't he given us the Lord's Supper to remind us? 
to be our, our beautiful and powerful and emotional reminder? The Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine are the signs and seals of the covenant working in concert with the preached word to direct us to God. Have you considered the purpose of our altar? Is it a God-honoring purpose? It currently displays candles and an open Bible. You'll see the same thing in, in some other churches. So for at least some Christians, an altar is part of their worship. For many, it serves to remind them of what Christ has done, that he is the light and and that God's word is important. The altar is therefore a symbol. It is a sign. Where is that symbolism in Scripture? And what I mean is, where does the New Testament attach spiritual significance to inanimate objects like some attach to an altar? Should a candle flame represent for us the light of Christ? Didn't Jesus say, we are the light of Christ? We see the light of Christ in each other. In each other. The light of Christ goes out into the world, not because we parade it back the aisle, but because we scatter from this building, because we are the light of the world. That's what the Bible talks about. It is looking at a physical Bible open, up front, displayed for us. God's prescribed means to remind us or teach us of him. Or is reading and preaching and hearing and meditating on the word of God the means by which God reminds us and teaches us? Do we need an object, an image, an icon or an idol to remind us of Christ crucified to teach us the gospel. Aren't the word and sacraments beautifully adequate to communicate to us the gospel? Consider Galatians 3, 1 carefully. Christ was imaged for the Galatians through the preached word of God. Heidelberg Question 98 says, answer, it's the lively preaching of God's word that teaches the people, not idols or you could say objects. The lively preaching, whoa, I'm getting charismatic, preaching, sorry about that, I know you see me spit, but I can't, I don't have to throw the book at you. From the beginning of history, my friends, It has been a great temptation for people to attach spiritual significance to inanimate objects or symbols unauthorized by God. And God has cautioned us about that. Have we forgotten the second commandment? I humbly ask you that you carefully consider these matters for yourself and for our church. Because it's important to God and it is integral to the purity and passion of our worship. Oh, that we would employ and enjoy the beautiful God-prescribed means of worship. Oh, that the people of God would be our delight more than structures. 
Oh, that together we would revel in God's word and sacraments and prudently utilize buildings and equipment only as much as they inconspicuously help us facilitate the word and sacraments. A communion table is somewhat important because it's practical and useful to help facilitate something authorized by God, the Lord's Supper itself. A pulpit, well, it's, it's somewhat important because it's practical and useful to help facilitate something that is authorized by God, the preaching of God's word. Be careful and discerning with what you attach spiritual significance to in worship and what role you allow it to play in your worship. This, this thinking, I know it might be revolutionary for some of you. It may really press up against sensitive things for you. I know that. I want to be gracious. I want to show it to you in the text. If it's revolutionary for you, even if it's not, I encourage you to discern these very tedious things through deep Bible study. Deep Bible study. That is my plea. What does God say? That's what you should be primarily concerned about. You will find nothing in the New Testament which commands or prescribes what our building and tools should be or look like. So God doesn't find them particularly important. Therefore, we must be wise. We must be prudent. We must move carefully with these things of how we use our building and how we use its tools as to not attach unnecessary spiritual significance to these things. We must be very careful. On the other hand, the New Testament talks a lot about the people of God, the temple of God, which is us, you and me, the people. And and the New Testament talks a lot about how we should live and how we should interact with one another and how we should worship and what we should offer to God. New Testament worship is about spirit and truth, not wood and bricks. It's about Jesus, our place of worship, and the Holy Spirit, our worship leader, It's about the people of God who compose the temple of God. It's about preaching. It's about teaching, baptizing, communing at the Lord's table, praying, singing, fellowshipping, sharing, loving, encouraging, exhorting, rebuking, correcting, comforting, caring, and you can do all of that outside. The Holy Spirit is not in wood, stone, and glass. The Holy Spirit is in his people working through the word and sacraments, you could say, biblical worship. Are you offering God worship that he is repulsed by? Have you studied God's word enough that you know what God wants from you, from us as a church? Is your heart attentive to giving him what he wants? God is sarcastic. Oh, yes. Sarcastic in verse 8. Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? The implication is you're giving me gifts that you would not even offer political dignitaries, and you expect me to give you favor for this? Evil. Are we giving God our best or are we giving God our leftovers? If we are giving God anything less than best, church, we got to repent and reform. We must repent and reform our worship 
to receive grace and favor from God. Verse 9, and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? God is sarcastic in verse 9, too. Israel wanted his favor, sure, but, but their sacrifices were awful, so they should not have expected his favor. They needed genuine repentance leading to genuine reform. True repentance always leads to true reform. True repentance always leads to true reform. The favor of God, it's conditional in this sense. In this sense. It will not come without repentance and reform. Israel could go on pleading for God's favor and grace, but if they continued with their treacherous gifts, how could they expect favor from God? How could he, they expect him to do? Repent and return to God. God was very direct in verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. God commanded temple worship, but here we find him saying, close up the doors. I don't want what you're giving me. Close it up. He wanted it to stop. Why? It'd be better to offer God no sacrifice than to desecrate his altar with polluted sacrifices. God actually said, I have no pleasure in you. I will not accept what you're giving me. It is not good enough. It will not fly. And that's terrifying if you think about it. The point of worship has never been empty and subjective ritual. The point of worship is to honor God and to delight in him as father and master in a way that pleases him as father and master. If worship is polluted and doesn't please God, it's better not to worship at all. To just be honest, you know, some churches in Lancaster County need to board up their doors and not open next week. Because they are busy with meaningless religious activity that doesn't please God. Preaching that sounds more like Oprah than it sounds like the Word of God. Scripture replaced with best-selling books and movies. Corporate worship that seems strikingly familiar to cultural trends. Flagrant and unrepentant sin is tolerated, in some cases celebrated, in the name of love and peace. Has the evangelical church gone mad and forgotten what God is pleased with? How will the nations know of the greatness of God's name? How will they know of his holiness if they see the church despising his name with their polluted worship? Let the nations see how great our God is by the purity and passion of our worship and the holiness of our lives. What does our church need to repent of? What does Jerusalem church need to reform? Are you ready? Am I ready? Maybe that's the better question. Am I ready to walk through this? No, it's not the better question. We all have to think about this. We're all accountable to God. It's not, don't look at your pastor. Look at your heart. If honor and fear are to come from Jerusalem, we must have one single ambition as the people of God. 
our greatest aim in worship should always be the pleasure of God. What are you aiming at when you come here on Sundays? Here's what you should aim for. Along with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you should aim at offering God what brings him pleasure. Imagine week after week offering God worship only to hear him say to you, I have no pleasure in you. I will not accept what you're giving me. It is not good enough. Imagine. This line is terrifying. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. As sons and daughters of God, as servants of God, our greatest aim should be to honor and fear our father and our master, and our greatest shame would be to bring no pleasure to him. Shame. His pleasure is our pleasure. See, when you, please, please get this, you might want to write it down, see When you seek the pleasure of God, you are seeking your own pleasure as well. When you seek the pleasure of Almighty God, in that pursuit, you are seeking your own greatest pleasure. His pleasure is our greatest pleasure. The only way to maximize your joy and pleasure in life and eternity is to seek for one highest aim, the pleasure of God. I made you a promise. I intend to keep it. Jesus Christ is God's only begotten Son who has eternally honored his Father. Jesus Christ has served God with unwavering loyalty and fear. Jesus Christ is the preeminent high priest who has only ever loved the name of God and who has offered himself as a pure, the pure and perfect and final sacrifice on the cross, which God has received as acceptable to pay the penalty for sin and to assuage his wrath in full. Jesus Christ has not despised the Lord's table. He has put himself on it. As the only perfectly sufficient substitute, Jesus Christ is the only sacrifice that pleases God. It is from the hand of Jesus Christ that he offered himself in order to bring the grace and favor of God when at least one priest should have shut the doors. Jesus Christ, the high priest, has entered through the doors and has boldly walked in and given himself so that God could say, I have pleasure in you. I accept you. I will accept you for them. My people, I said earlier that God accepts perfect. Anything less is evil. Oh, my friends, how will our worship ever be acceptable to God? How will we, knowing what you do about yourself, Knowing what you do about your sick and twisted pastor, how are we going to bring pleasure to God? There is one way, and it is a glorious way. 
through Jesus Christ, our perfect and pure and passionate sacrifice. Jesus alone is perfect. Jesus alone is acceptable. And when you and I approach God through Christ and give him faith-filled uh, offering of, offerings of worship out of love for him, your Father accepts it with gladness. He receives your, your, your broken and yeah, it's not perfect, and he takes delight in it. He is pleased with it all because of the merits and life of Jesus Christ. He gets pleasure from us because we offer him worship through his son. And he makes, the son, makes our worship perfect in the eyes of God. Repent of your idolatrous worship. And come boldly to your Father and your Master through Jesus Christ, your Savior. And you will bring pleasure to God. You will be a a pleasing, living sacrifice to God. Even you, even me. My plea is simple. Offer to God pure and passionate worship through Christ alone. For it is only in Christ alone that your worship is acceptable and pleasing to God. Did I honor the promise? Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus who has made our broken and foul worship acceptable to you. And may that not incite in us a spirit to sit back and offer you whatever we want. But may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit working in us lead us to repent of our idolatrous worship and to go deeper into pure and passionate worship that pleases you in Christ. Oh, may we do it Christ's way. Oh, may we not attach any spiritual significance to things that Jesus himself does not attach spiritual significance to. God, give us discernment because some of these things are so confusing when we've seen things done a a certain way all of our lives. And then we're like, yeah, but what about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? And we don't know. We're, We're trying to figure this out. So guess what? God, oh, we need your Holy Spirit to lead us in the truth that we may have right and acceptable worship that is all about spirit and truth, that is all about faith in Christ, that is offered through this union with our Lord and Savior, the perfect sacrifice for us. He gave perfect worship to you, Father. And we want to give worship, and if we're going to give it perfectly, we have to give it through him. Oh, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Amen.